Thanks, uh, Andy and Dave and Anna. For, thanks for those songs about the Holy Spirit. And this, we'll be looking at the book of Acts. has a lot about the Holy Spirit. We're beginning a new Bible R series this, uh, today. And God willing, over the next many weeks and months, we will be continuing in the book of Acts. A number of brothers will be sharing in this ministry, and I trust it will be profitable and edifying to us as we go through. I know the Bible Study Fellowship, BSF, is doing the same book this, this year. So for those of you who are part of that study, I trust it would be a double blessing. I do thank you for your prayers this morning and continue to pray for all those who teach the word here from, at the chapel that you'd uh, continue to do that. Normally, uh, introductions to our series are done by Brother Phil. And this time, I'm going to be doing it. But you'll see part of Phil in there because the handout that you got this morning uh, on the backside of it, uh, I had all except one of those points in my... I was, but it wasn't as nicely alliterated as Phil had in his points. So I've used his whole... the, the seven Ps. Great Phil's think alike. <laughs> yeah, too bad. That's a Phil, Phil kind of joke. <laughs> Let's actually, I'd like to read maybe the first uh, chapter one, the first eight verses before we go into the introduction here. Acts 1, verses 1 through 8, I'm reading from the New King James. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the ends of the earth. You shall be my witnesses. Ron Hutchcraft, who used to do the uh, pre-evangelism training for, for the Billy Graham Crusades, has a book called Called to Greatness. He begins that book with this uh, story, and I'll read part of it. He said, there's a legend concerning the return of Jesus to heaven, but behind the legend is an eternal truth worth considering. Indeed, the truth can forever change what you live for. And the legend goes as such, as Gabriel welcomed the Son of Man, Son of God back to his heavenly home some 2,000 years ago, Jesus repeated the words he had spoken in his final moments on the cross. It is finished. Christ went on to explain that his divinely appointed life-saving mission had been completed. While Gabriel rejoiced with the Master over his mission accomplished, he did have some questions. Now how will the world know about what you have done, the angel asked. 
How will your good news be spread, Lord? Did you leave behind a strong organization on earth? Are there some well-defined plans for letting the people you love know that you died for them? The Savior's answer surprised and frankly disappointed the angel. He said, no, I left no organization there, only a small company of disciples, mostly a very humble birth. It is up to them to tell the world. But what if they fail you, persisted Gabriel. What plan do you have then? Gazing downward at the world he had just left, the world he so loved, Jesus replied, I have no other plan. The story is a legend, but the conclusion is an inescapable challenge from the word of God. X 1.8, you shall be my witnesses. You shall be my witnesses. Not angelic messengers, not a religious organization. The work for which Jesus gave his life is in our hands, his everyday followers. He has no other plan. Heaven's life-saving message for people who are dying has been entrusted to us. Second Corinthians 5 verse 20 says, we are Christ's ambassadors. Romans 10 and 14 and 15, how can they call on the name on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? If there's a theme to the book of Acts, and we see, we'll talk about all of the, uh, the book and just the outline this morning. It's the, I would take that verse, you shall be my witnesses. You shall be my witnesses. Let's pray before we start this morning. Father, we just commit this time to you. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells our hearts. And as we think about this challenge to us from the book of Acts, how am I doing at being a witness for you? I think of each of us here this morning that know you in the circles that you've put us in. That the Spirit would challenge us, would give us boldness and guide and direct our steps in the days ahead. I pray for this as we look at the introduction to this book. This is a wonderful book of the birth of the church and the early church and the early disciples, the, the, the ministry and the early believers. That it would be a blessing to us that your Holy Spirit would indeed move in our hearts and lives to draw others to you, to recommit ourselves to you. Thank you for all that we have in him. And we just commit this time to you. Pray that you'd speak to us. Pray that you'd use me, your servant, to speak your word this morning. We just ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's begin with some background. Uh, as Dave Reed in his talk says, background notes. Uh, uh, and that in your handout... I, I don't, I can't read or write or speak Greek, but just for Mike Merritt's sake, I put the words, I could type the words in, in Greek. <laughs> so I put that in there, and Mike's not here today. So. <laughs> we all know that the, the author is Dr. Luke, don't we? How do we know that? Those, those of you who read through the book, perhaps in preparation for this, does he mention himself by name anywhere in the book? No, he doesn't, doesn't he? Does he mention himself by name anywhere in his gospel? No, no, no. In fact, the name Luke only occurs three times in the new, entire New Testament. And, and Paul refers to Luke all three times. Colossians 4, 4 verse 14, 2 Timothy 4 verse 11, and Philemon verse 24. 
that's the only time his name in reference to Luke. Every time else, it's, it's either uh, he talks about we or I. How do we know then? Well, very early on, in the, the, one of the earliest canons of Scripture, the Muratorian canon in uh, AD 170, clearly lists Luke as the author of this book. And uh, Eusebius, the historian in 325 AD, lists numerous sources that name Luke as the author of this book. Uh, but there are clues in the scripture when you, you see the pronoun we that's used to document him with, uh, with traveling with Paul as the companion of Paul. And those references are listed on your handout, Acts 16, 10 through 17. And then you have kind of an account of Luke the physician in chapter 28 where, remember when Paul and uh, they, they're shipwrecked and they're on the island of Malta and, and they're gathering wood and the wiper comes out and gathers Paul's hand and uh, it's almost like a physician's description. They expect, expected Paul to swell up and die, and he doesn't. So we have clues that he is the author of the book. And uh, just, uh, I, just a simple point about, you know, if you and I write a book, don't you think we'd put our name somewhere? In the humility of him. Nowhere in, that, in the gospel or in the Acts of the Apostles does he name himself. Unlike where the authority of the apostles, Paul in the Pauline epistles, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, you know, he names himself in the other, and that's needed. But here you see his humility in not promoting himself, but writing this detailed account. What are the dates? Well, there are two possible dates that the commentators talk about. The earliest one is the AD 63, which is the likely date, which occurs soon after the events recorded in the book. We have the imprisonment of Paul in Rome and there for two whole years, and the book ends there. Some people claim it's later in AD 70. That's highly unlikely because a careful writer like Luke would have recorded what the outcome of Paul's trial was, that uh, he was killed, uh, and uh, they recorded the fall of Jerusalem if it, it was in AD 70. So the AD 63 is the likely uh, early date, is the likely date of writing. What about the recipient? Well, the recipient really is all of us. All scripture is given by inspiration and it's given for instruction, for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for instruction and training. Teaching tells us what is right, reproof tells us what is not right, correction tells us how to get it right and training tells us how to stay right so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's the recipient is us but the specific recipient listed in both in Luke's gospel and here is Theophilus. We really don't know exactly who Theophilus was. The name is Roman. It probably was a Roman. And it's, uh, the name means one who loves God. In the Gospel of Luke, it, he's addressed as most excellent Theophilus. So he's probably a Roman of wealth and station. There's some suggestion that he might have been Luke. The physicians in those days all had patrons. And a suggestion that maybe he was a patron of Dr. Luke. And, uh, but, uh, and also was probably likely the person to be in charge of copying and distributing Luke's gospel in the, in the early days. So it's sort of a publisher. What's the importance of the book of Acts? Well, the book of Acts provides a transition. It's a book of transition. It serves as a bridge between the gospels on one side and uh, the uh, apostolic letters on the other. It's a continuation of what, in verse 1, what be, Jesus began to do and teach in his stay on earth with what the apostles continued to do and teach in the name of the Lord. And so you have this uh, bridge that this book, 
You know, if you didn't have this book and you just had the Pauline epistles, you'd wonder, how, how was this church at Galatia form? How was this church at Ephesians? How was this Philippian church? How was this Thessalonian church? But you have the book of Acts that documents Paul's missionary journeys. And you see in the, all those places, you get a feel for who the people were and who the believers were. And then you have these letters that are addressed to them and it gives you a much better understanding of how the, the early church evolved. And you have all the lands between Jerusalem and then through Rome, the center of the empire at that time. Well, what about theme and purpose? Well, the theme, and I suggested this, perhaps the theme would be best summarized in 1 verse 8. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea and all the ends of the earth. And it does, the book shows that progression from Judea, Samaria, and then all those other places. And today it continues on to the ends of the earth. You know, it's surprising. The Romans were very tolerant of all religions, really, except one. They were tolerant of all religions as long as people were willing to acknowledge Caesar as the absolute authority, and the Christians didn't. Neither did the Jews for that matter. Isn't it similar today? I would just think of that. You know, they're very tolerant of everything, except when you claim that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Well, we've been going through chapter by chapter in the coming months, so I'm not going to go into details of the hand, the last part of your handout on the bottom section of the front page. Uh, before we get to that, what about uh, the purpose of the book? Well, one purpose is to present a history. The significance of Acts as a historical account of early Christianity cannot be overemphasized. It tells us of the founding of the church, after Pentecost, Peter preached and about 3,000 people were saved and baptized. And that was the early nascent church. One of the unique aspects of Christianity as a religion is its firm historical foundation. Let me say that again. One of the unique aspects of Christianity as a religion is its firm historical foundation. Unlike many other religions that have all these mythological creatures or gods, you have it well documented, and there's, if you're really interested in going into about all the ancient manuscripts and documents that we have that document early Christianity, there's no other religion that has that. But that's not necessarily that you, know, you have the grace of God demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. But to present a history. Secondly, to give a defense. In the book of Acts, we see a record of Christian defenses that are presented, or Apologetics. That's where apologia or apologetics comes from. In Acts, in uh, Acts chapter four, you have the defense given by Peter to the Jews. In Acts chapter seventeen, you have uh, Paul addressing the, the Greeks and the Areopagus. In Acts chapter twenty-five, with, in front of Felix, a uh, couple of chapters later, in front of King Agrippa. But the purpose is not just to give a defense; it's to draw others to Christ, isn't it? And that's what he says when King Agrippa says, Paul, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul says, not just you, but I want all those who hear the word to be drawn to the one whom I serve. We've been part of uh, RZM Ministries and privileged to be a part in helping. RZM has, it's, it's an apologetic ministry, but they say that's not the primary purpose. They always say it's evangelism undergirded by apologetics. 
You see, we have valid reasons for believing what we believe. There's plenty of evidence given for what we believe is true. But ultimately, it takes a step of faith. You can always say, you know, I I don't know the answer to this question. So there is a step of faith that's needed. But there's plenty of evidence. If you are here this morning and are skeptical of Christianity, go to the Word of God. Study it. It will transform you. Ask God to tell me, Lord, is this true? And he will. Last week we were blessed by Brother Earl's ministry, weren't we? He came to know the Lord in high school. And the Lord has transformed his life. And called him to service. Present a history to give a defense. Thirdly, to provide a guide. You know, Luke had no way of knowing how long the church would continue on the earth. And if you read the Pauline epistles, it would seem that even the Apostle Paul considered that the return of the Lord was just imminent. It was perhaps in the same generation. And so the book of Acts does give us, although it's not a doctrinal book in the sense for teaching us how we live as Christians... It does give us principles and practices of the church. In fact, we follow it today. And somebody else, I think it's Evan, who's going to be speaking on Acts 2, the last section, 2.42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the breaking of bread, fellowship, and in prayer. It's a pattern that's given to us that we attempt to follow even today. As Dave Glock used to say, how we do church. We follow the early pattern of the believers. And fourthly, uh, uh, a purpose to depict the triumph of Christianity in the face of bitter persecution. To depict the triumph of Christianity in the face of bitter persecution. You see, when uh, in Matthew 16, when the Lord asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and then the Lord makes this statement, upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. You see, when the Christians are persecuted, the church grows, doesn't it? We see that in the book of Acts. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I think a couple times ago when I spoke, I spoke of an essay by uh, uh, F.W. Borum called The Candle and the Bird. It's really a beautiful essay. You can find it online. If you Google it, you'll find it. It talks about the church and its persecution. You see, when you blow a candle out, it's snuffed out. But when you try to shoo, uh, scare a bird or you know, frighten a bird away when it's singing its song, all it does is it flies away and sings its song on another branch. That's how Christianity spreads. When the Christians were persecuted, they scattered. And they took the message of the gospel with them. And the gospel spread. God had no other plan. You are my witnesses. They did that. And at, towards the end of the book of Acts, we see all these places where churches have been established. The triumph for Christianity in the face of bitter persecution. It was Walter, the French philosopher, who said that Christianity would be, and the Bible would be obsolete within a hundred years. Today, today, Walter's house is the home of the French Bible Society. The purpose, just briefly on the characteristics of the book. Uh, it's surprising that you have a doctor who's such a good writer, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> he probably couldn't read his own handwriting. But, uh, <laughs> so just briefly, and uh, firstly, accurate historical detail. Every page of Acts abounds with sharp historical details, whether it's people or government administrations, all kinds of people and cultures, court scenes, dramatic events, earthquakes, and angelic jail rescue. 
the martyrdom of Stephen, Saul on the road to Damascus, the person falling from the balcony and being raised to life, that storm and a typhoon, all of that documented in these chapters that we'll be studying in the months to come. There's also literary excellence for those who are students of literature. He, Luke has a large vocabulary compared to other New Testament writers, and he those who study the actual language, he writes in literary styles that fit the cultural setting of the event. He was recording at times he employs classical Greek, at other times he employs Aramaic in his writing, which was the language of first century Palestine. Thirdly, a dramatic description. Luke uses speeches from various individuals and sermons as part of his, uh, his uh, book. Starting with after Pentecost, you have Peter, then you have... Uh, multiple times, then you have Paul and all his addresses, and he weaves that into the narrative of the book. And lastly, it's an objective account. He arranges his narrative, and it does not distract. He arranges it, but it does not detract from its accuracy. And he records the good and the bad, doesn't he? He records the conflict with the Greek, between the Greek and the Hebraic Jews. Uh, he records the conflict between... Uh, Paul and Barnabas, which we talked about at our last men's breakfast. He doesn't just cover the good. He documents everything that's there for us. So just uh, all of that as an introduction. At the bottom of your handout on the front page, you have uh, there are many ways to divide the book, and we're going to be following sort of a narrative account from Warren Wiersbe as we go through the book. The first 12 chapters, the ministry of Peter, the last uh, 13 through 28, the ministry of Paul. And in the first 12 chapters, Jerusalem's the center, and the last half, it's Syrian Antioch. The first seven chapters, you have Peter and the Jews. Pentecost, we talked about the offer of the kingdom this morning, the absolute rejection by the Jewish leaders. Then we wind up with uh, Stephen's address in martyrdom. Then in chapter 8, we have Peter and the uh, Samaritans. We have uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, conversion of Saul in chapter 9, and uh, Cornelius the Roman centurion in chapter 10. And Peter's arrest and deliverance in chapter 12. And then you have kind of Peter fading from the, from the account. And you have Paul, uh, the ministry of Paul and his missionary journeys that we'll be looking at. And then the last part of the book is uh, Paul's arrest and journey to Rome. So all of that is a kind of a general outline of the book. But if you turn the, your handout over, the book of Acts is a book of many different things. And we've... And again, thanks to Phil for alliterating that. And a book of, firstly, it's a book of people. It's a book of people. There are numerous people and people groups that are mentioned in this book. If you look in chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, in verse 8, and it says, how, how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. A whole laundry list of names of people that are there at the time. It's a book of people. But if you had to pick three main characters, other than the underlying person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit all throughout, three main human characters, you have Peter, then you have in the middle you have Stephen, and then you have Paul. And just to pick one, we had a lessons on the life of Peter sometime back in Bible R. You know, we see Peter, the apostle, empowered by the Holy Spirit, boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. This 
apostle who had denied the Lord three times and restored to loving fellowship, now boldly proclaiming, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He addresses the crowd in chapter 2. And then in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 36, says this, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And the people, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, it says. And they said, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are on the way to the temple. They heal that man crippled from birth. And then Peter addresses the crowd. They're again seized, and the next day they're brought before the rulers and elders in the Sanhedrin. Again, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, addresses the leaders, boldly proclaiming that it is by the power of Jesus, the one who was raised from the dead, that they were able to heal that person. And then you have this magnificent verse in Acts 4 and verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Peter was following that command in 1 verse 8. You shall be my witnesses. Salvation in no one else. Dear ones, that statement is absolutely true even today. There is salvation in no one else except Jesus Christ. John 14 and verse 6, the Lord himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Titus 2 and 11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Romans 10 and verse 9. How are, can you be saved? The Philippian jailer asked that in Philippians 16. It says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Romans 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then verse 13 of Romans 10. In fact, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Can it be as simple as that? Don't we need to go through this whole process of penance and doing this and doing that, trying to please God? No. He has provided the way of salvation and it's found in Jesus and Jesus alone. People, have you trusted him as Savior? You know, in uh, Luke 8, 9, and 10, I believe uh, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, carefully arranges those characters showing that all the world needs a savior. In Luke chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, likely a descendant of Ham, Noah's son. In chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus, a Jew, likely, well not likely, a descendant of Shem. And in chapter 10, Cornelius, the Roman centurion, likely a descendant of Japheth. The sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, Japheth, all needing a savior. And Luke documenting that, that, the Savior was for the whole world. Have you trusted him as Savior? This last week was 9-11, wasn't it? And I've, I've said this before. Perhaps you've heard the gospel before. And you've put it off. You know, on, on that day, on 9-11, they always show videos of what happened that day. And you see these planes flying into the building in this massive explosion. And just the horror of that day, people jumping out of 
a building. There's one video we don't see. It's the video of people in those offices who look out the window and did not have time to take pictures of that plane that was coming. Thousands of lives snuffed out. If you've heard the gospel before and you've been putting it off, I would urge you, don't put it off. You never know what's going to happen tomorrow the minute you go out of here. Salvation is found in no one else except the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you trust him as Savior? Secondly, a book of, firstly, a book of people, a book of places. You see, when the Lord said Judea and Samaria into the ends of the earth, and Luke uh, documents that geographic progress. In the first seven chapters, we see the work in Jerusalem. Chapter 8, Philip in Samaria, meeting the Ethiopian eunuch, the treasurer of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. Chapter 9, we see Paul on the, uh, Saul on the road to Damascus. Chapter 10, we see Peter after his vision, that he's got, and he goes to meet Cornelius in Caesarea. Then from then we see the start of Paul's missionary journey, and you have all these places, much of the known world around at the time. Cyprus, Paphos. Paphos is where Elymas the sorcerer was struck blind. Perga, Pisidian Antioch, Derby, Lystra, Phrygia, Galatia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, Macedonia, Troas. Troas was the one where the young fellow was <clears throat> listening to Paul droning, going on and on. And... <laughs> fell off the balcony and Paul raises him. Then to Caesarea, and then uh, he appears before Felix and Agrippa, and then finally on the road to Rome, Malta, and in Rome where he is for two years. It's a book of places, isn't it? You know, even today, the gospel is a book of places, I mean, and people. Every Wednesday, alternate Wednesday, Dave reads missionary letters from people from places of the gospel going forth. Missionaries who are laboring in parts, whether it's in Burundi, in the Congo, in Mozambique, whether it's in the Far East, whether it's in uh, Papua New Guinea, whether it's in South America, North America, which part of the world. The gospel continues to go forth. The gospel goes forth in places. But how? He shall be my witnesses. It doesn't go on its automatically on its. Now God is speaking directly to people, in, especially in the Muslim world. But he needs his, his followers to proclaim his name. Thirdly, it's a book of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? From chapter 1, where the Lord and, uh, exhorts them to wait for the Holy Spirit. And chapter 2, we see the arrival of the Holy Spirit as a violent wind and then cloven tongues of fire that descend on them. The Holy Spirit is mentioned about 40 times times in the, in the book of Acts, more than any other New Testament book. In chapter 4, after the believers prayed, the whole place was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke boldly, 4 verse 31. Chapter 5, we see Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit, and they meet untimely deaths. Chapter 6, we see Stephen, one of the seven deacons, who's chosen, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 8, we see Peter and John lay their hands on the Samaritan believers, and they receive the Holy Spirit. We see the same in Acts 19 for the efficient believers when Paul lays his hands on them and prays. Without the movement of the Holy Spirit, there can be no growth of the church. Without the movement of the Holy Spirit, there can be no growth in the church. Can this happen today? I'll read a story from uh, this book later, but 
those of you who haven't read the account of the Brooklyn Tabernacle in that church in New York, Pastor Jim Simbala, this book is called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. Speaking of the Holy Spirit and its movement and how that little church, that was about 200 people, the Spirit began to move when they surrendered to him and began to spread. And that whole community, now it's thousands of who gather every Sunday at the Brooklyn Tabernacle. God is abundantly blessed. And these are people who are coming out of lives that are depraved by sin. And the Lord is building this church. A book of the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, it's a book of prayer. It's a book of prayer. This was very, uh, the Lord was convicting me of this when I was going through. You know, in every, almost every chapter in the book, prayer is mentioned. In Acts 1.14, these all continued steadfastly with one accord in prayer and supplication. Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Acts 3 was 1, Peter and John went up to the temple to pray. Acts 4 was 31, when they prayed, the place where they assembled together was shaken. Acts 6, the apostles, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. I've said this before and I will say it again. The only reason I stand before you today, the only reason before I can stand before you today, is I answered prayers from my mom and a group of ladies who when their children were small, agreed that they would pray for one another's kids every day of their lives till the Lord took them home. Your young parents were here this morning and these little ones are running around here. Would you commit to that? Those children are going to be growing up in a world that was far different from one I grew in. The temptations that they're going to face, the culture they're going to face, the hostility towards Christians that they're going to face absolutely needs prayer. That whole older generation of prayer warriors has gone home to be with the Lord. Who will take their place? Who will take their place? I shared this at the elders' meeting last yesterday about the Lord speaking to me about this and the need for prayer. You know, we, we do pray at the beginning of each elders' meeting, but it is very short. Because we have this long list of agenda items that we need to cover. And there have been times when I've been at the elders meeting. And I said, can we get on with this prayer so we can get to the agenda? And I was thinking of that when I was preparing this. And I had to cry. The elders have committed to at least spend an hour in prayer going forward. Are we willing to do that in our own lives? Let me just read from, when I'll just read parts of it. This is Jim Simbala and his own daughter. He says, our oldest daughter Chrissy had been a model child growing up, but around age 16 she started to stray. I admit I was slow to notice this. I was too occupied with the church, starting branch congregations, overseeing projects, and all that ministry entails. Meanwhile, Chrissy not only drew away from us, but also away from God. In time, she even left our home. There were many nights we had no idea where she was. And I'll just go ahead. And he talks about how difficult it was to continue to minister with his daughter. I think she was into drugs at the time, too. And one day his wife, Carol, says, came to him and says, listen, we need to leave New York. I'm serious. 
this atmosphere has already swallowed up our daughter. We can't keep raising kids yet. If you want to stay, you can, but I'm getting our other children out. She wasn't kidding. It was that time, and I said, Jim saying, I, we, Carol, we just can't do that. We can't take off without knowing God, what God wants us to do. And he writes about a song that Carol is, leads the Brooklyn Cabinetical Choir, but a song that was given to her. And he says this, in my moments of fear, through every pain, every tear, there's a God who's been faithful to me. This was the song God gave her. When my strength was all gone, when my heart had no song, still in love he's proved faithful to me. Everybody's promise is true. What I thought was impossible, I see my God do. And he writes about how he had to continue to struggle through this, still talking to one of his fellow ministers in Florida. He, and that minister told him, Jim, I love you and your wife, but the truth of the matter is this. Chrissy's going to do what Chrissy's going to do. You don't really have much choice now that she's 18. She's determined. You're going to have to accept whatever she decides. And then he goes on and he writes about praying with more intensity and growing faith. And he knew that the Lord was going to intercede. And then they have their prayer meeting on Tuesday nights. It was a cold Tuesday night in February. And Jim writes, I talked about Acts 4, about the church boldly calling on God in the face of persecution. He writes, an usher handed me a note. A young woman who I felt was spiritually sensitive had written on that. Pastor Simbala, I feel impressed that we should stop the meeting and all pray for your daughter. I hesitated. Was it right to change the flow of the service? Yet something in the note seemed to ring true. And in a few minutes, I picked up the microphone and told the congregation what had just happened. The truth of the matter, I said, although I haven't talked much about it, is that my daughter is very far from God these days. She thinks up is down and down is up. Dark is light and light is dark. But I know God can break through to her. So I'm going to ask Pastor, one of the other pastors to lead us in praying. And he talks about the whole church. To describe what happened in the next minute, I can only employ a metaphor. The church turned into a labor room. Galatians 4:19. Paul writing, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. There arose a groaning, a sense of desperate determination, as if to say, Satan, you will not have this girl. Take your hands off her. She's coming back. And he writes, going home. And he tells his wife, it's over with Chrissy. You had to have been in the prayer meeting tonight. I tell you, if there's a God in heaven, this whole nightmare is finally over. Just a day and a half later, as he was shaving in the morning, his wife burst through the door and said, Chrissy's here. Chrissy's here? Yes. Go down. She wants to see you. He says, I came around the corner downstairs. I saw my daughter on the kitchen floor, rocking on her hands and knees, sobbing. Cautiously, I spoke her name. Chrissy, she grabbed my pant leg and began pouring out her anguish. Daddy, Daddy, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against myself. I've sinned against you and Mommy. Please forgive me. My vision was clouded by tears as, as hers was. I pulled her up from the floor and held her close, and we cried together. And suddenly she drew back and she said, Daddy, who was praying for me? Who was praying for me? What do you mean? On Tuesday night, who was praying for me? In the middle of the night, God woke me and showed me I was heading towards this abyss. There was no bottom to it. It scared me to death. But at the same time, it was like God wrapped his arms around me and held me tight. He kept me from sliding any further as he said, Daddy, as he said, I still love you. Daddy, tell me the truth. Who was praying for me? Chrissy's return to the Lord became evident immediately. By that fall, God had opened a miraculous door for her to enroll at a Bible college. She began directing music groups in a large choir, just like her mother. Today she is a pastor's wife in the Midwest with three wonderful children. 
through all this, Carol and I learned as never before that persistent calling upon the Lord breaks through every stronghold of the devil, for nothing is impossible with God. We have wayward sons and daughters here, don't we? People who are into drugs, people who strayed from the Lord, people who have lost their way. We have not, as a church, fallen and cried to the Lord on their behalf. I have not. I do pray for them, yes. Have you ever done that collectively? I hope you do. I hope you do. The book of Acts, a book of prayer. Let's move on. Uh, it's a book of power, isn't it? In Acts 1.8, the disciples were promised power when the Holy Spirit came upon them to be witnesses for the Lord. You know, that same power is available to every believer in Christ, isn't it? Because when you and I come to know the Lord and trust Him as Savior, we're baptized by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit indwells us. That power is available to us. Then why don't we avail of it? Adoniram Gordon, who uh, writes one of the uh, spiritual giants, writes this, why should, be sat- why should we be satisfied with the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, when the Lord would also grant us according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Ephesians 3.16 And he writes this outside my study, and when he was writing was a street, and on the street was a powerful electric current that connect, was constantly moving. You could not see the current or hear it. You cannot taste or smell it, but I would, might reasonably discredit its existence. And then he's talking about the trolley uh, buses that ran back and forth. But I see a slender arm called the trolley reaching up and touching that wire and immediately the car with its heavy load of passengers moves along the track as though something it's in the grasp of a mighty hand. He talks about the Holy Spirit in the same manner. He says the change which may be ensued maybe which ensued may be described thus instead of praying constantly for the descent of a divine influence, there was now a surrender however imperfect, to a divine and ever-present being. Instead of a constant effort to make use of the Holy Spirit for doing my work, there arose a clear and abiding conviction that the true secret of service lay in so yielding to the Holy Spirit that he might use me to do his work. In so yielding to the Holy Spirit that he might use me to do his work. I trust that would be our prayer. A book of the Holy Spirit. Sixthly, a book of persistence and progress. We see phrases like they continued with one accord, continued steadfastly, continued daily, searched the scriptures daily, did not cease teaching and preaching. Today, even as believers in the assembly, do we consider, I wonder how much we have this attitude. You know, this much is the Lord's time, the rest of it is my time. Do we live our lives like that? I'll give that much time to the Lord. The rest of it, the Lord, is mine. Are we willing to surrender to the Holy Spirit that he might use us to do his work in whatever way he pleases? In whatever way he pleases. Lastly, a book of the person of Jesus Christ. 
You know, in chapter 1, we see the risen Lord was still present and speaking to them. In chapter 9, we see him meeting, the apostle, uh, meeting Saul on the road to Damascus. Chapter 23, we see the Lord speaking directly to Paul and reassuring him of his being a witness in Rome. But other than that, we don't see the risen Lord directly in the book, but he is throughout the book directing everything that happens, isn't it? Just as he does today. We may not see his hand. We don't see him with eyes, physical eyes, but we can see him with eyes of faith that he is. As you look back on your life and think of all that the Lord has done for you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. A book of the person of Jesus Christ. I trust in the coming months as we study this, this book, maybe we encourage to study his word. Pray more. Trust the Holy Spirit to give us boldness to be his witnesses. I have an application at the bottom of your handout. Are we following the command to be his witnesses? Are we continuing steadfastly in what the early church did? Are we praying Christians? Are we praying Christians as the early church was? Will we trust the Lord to help us be firm in our stand as believers? I would say when persecution comes, it's not a question of if. Again from... uh, Ron Hutchcraft's book, I'll be close with this. And he writes about the Titanic. Many of you have seen the movie Titanic, but as the Titanic was sinking, many passengers were able to put on a life jacket, but they could not find an available lifeboat. They jumped or fell into the ocean and were floating in those frigid waters, crying into the night for help. Again, there was room in the lifeboat for hundreds of them. That is why their fate is perhaps the most shocking tragedy of that night when 1,500 people died. Though those in the waters continued to cry out for someone to rescue them, the people in the lifeboats just kept rowing away. They thought it was too re- risky to attempt rescue. Of, out of the 20 lifeboats, only one finally turned back in time to save six passengers. And uh, Hutchcraft writes this, Will we turn our lifeboats around? Will we take the risk to give others a chance to live forever? The alternative is to just keep rowing and let them die. Tragically, too many Christians are content to just enjoy their own place in Jesus' lifeboat. We fellowship with our lifeboat comrades, we sing our lifeboat songs, and even work on ways to make our lifeboats bigger and more comfortable. Meanwhile, the people we see day after day are spiraling downward spiritually. How can they believe unless they're here? You shall be my witnesses to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. May the Lord bless us as we study this book. May the Lord change our hearts. May the Lord make us praying Christians. I'm going to ask something different as we pray. Would we stand? I know there are many of us face problems and difficulties, don't we? As we pray, if there's someone here who doesn't know the Lord, he is looking for you and calling you to himself. Would you trust him as your Savior? And for those of you who know him, there are problems we face. There's trials and difficulties whether it's sons or daughters who have gone astray, whether it's family relations that are broken, 
whether it's bitterness against the Lord, whether that is hurt feelings, whatever the issue might be, as we pray, would you pray yourself and commit that to the Lord and ask you to make him his witness in the place that he's put you, that he would give you boldness, that he would guide and direct your steps. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for your spirit that moves among us. Father, we are a needy people, but you are a great and an all-sufficient God. I pray for whatever issue we face in our lives. The dear ones here know what those are. And as we pray this morning, I pray that you would minister to us through your spirit. Help us to be calling on you constantly, that we would trust you, that you seek to draw us to yourself. Help us to be praying Christians. Help us to listen to what the Spirit has to say to us, that you would guide and direct our steps. Help us to be your witnesses in the coming days. Thank you for answering prayer, Lord. If there's anyone here who does not know you, I pray that your Spirit will work in them and that you draw them to yourself this morning. This I ask in the precious the irrefusable and the matchless name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated.